promote your Tell agenda and your wrong. Thing. One second, one second, because we just heard from the president. Anna, Anna, wait. It's okay to disagree. It's not okay to be mean. Yeah, I respectfully disagree. With I would respectfully disagree. I respectfully disagree. You're, you're changing this place, but you're not answering my question. Are you stupid? Being agreeable, saying and doing things in a pleasant way, that's easy enough. Happening at the Chris, we're right talking now. about it the is law an abomination. Right now. It is an abomination. It's an abomination. I don't think you should have to hate to oppose uh, somebody, but it makes it easier. You cut that out now, or you'll go home in an ambulance. Yeah, that seems mildly inappropriate for a political discussion. Uh, the famous chef, uh, James Beard, he once asked the question, where in the world would we be without salt? And that's kind of a question you would expect a chef to ask, uh, because normal people, uh, they don't really have time to think about salt. I mean, why would we? we? We say pass the salt, or do you have any salt? But but we don't sit around and actually think about salt. But James Beard, who there is a famous award that bears his name given to culinary excellence, the James Beard Award, he said, where in the world would we be without salt? As though he wanted us to actually think about it. Uh, and you're too busy to think about it, but while you have a little bit of time and I have a microphone and you don't, I want to help us think about salt for just a minute because it's amazing to think that something so small, just a granule of salt, uh, could have such an impact in our lives, a big impact in our lives. And it impacts our lives whether we think about it or not, this thing called salt. Uh, when it comes to you personally and your health, uh, your body requires salt, requires sodium in order to function properly and, and to regulate itself. And so, you know, in, in that sense, it's a really big deal to you personally, even though you don't think about it that often, uh, your body requires sodium and God made you that way. And, and that feels like a really big deal. Uh, but when you look throughout history and, and you study a little bit about salt, you'll find that salt is often the difference between salt and li you know, life and death. That's how important salt is. It, it really, a lot of times, is the difference between life and death. And, and you know why uh, in some of these you know, instances, uh, you know that salt was used uh, once upon a time and still in parts of the world, salt is used to preserve food, right? Before the days of refrigeration, which is a modern day you know, concoction that we don't even think about anymore. We just assume refrigeration. Uh, but in a world without refrigeration, salt was used uh, to pack meat in uh, so that it would be preserved longer and people would be able to save it for a bit of time uh, because salt actually worked to reduce and to prevent bacterial growth. And that was a big deal. And that was a matter of life and death in, in those days and in parts of our world still today. And then salt was used to treat wounds because there's, you know, this ability of salt to prevent infection. So that was a really big deal. It was kind of a matter of life and death. Uh, even in our modern world, salt is a big deal in manufacturing, uh, in manufacturing of so many different products, products that we use every day without even thinking about it. PVC pipe, uh, salt is a, big, is a big deal in the manufacturing of PVC pipe. Also in the production of paper, uh, in the petrochemical industry, uh, salt is a really, really big deal. In water treatment, uh, salt is a vital part of that. Uh, salt is really important, and because it's really important, it has always been throughout history incredibly valuable. Uh, it's actually impacted the development of economies, both on the national level and of empires. Um, if you study history, I love history, but you, you can read in history that 5,000 years ago, I mean, think about that. That's even hard for us to think about. 5,000 years ago, the Egyptians were packing fish in salt in order to export fish to other places. It was a big part 
part of their economy. It was a big boon to the people that was able to buy fish and to be able to eat fish that they couldn't catch in their part of the world. And so Egypt was packing fish and salt 5,000 years ago. Uh, that, that was a really big deal for them. And that was a big part of their economy. Uh, salt is used as currency throughout history. Uh, matter of fact, Roman soldiers were paid in salt. Uh, that's where we get the old saying, you're not worth your salt, right? You've heard of that. Uh, basically someone saying you're not worth your salary, you're not worth the money that you're earning. Uh, wars and uh, revolutions have been fought over salt. Uh, one of the most famous revolutions of history, the French Revolution, uh, the French monarchy placed a major tax upon salt and because of it, uh, the people rebelled and it led to revolution. Uh, Napoleon, once he came to power, he reinstituted it and it was actually in place to the mid-1950s uh, over in France and so it, it's been part of wars and revolutions. Uh, when the American colonists rebelled against the crown of England, uh, the British soldiers and the generals, they strategized on how to beat the colonists and part of their strategy was to cut off the salt supplies to the rebels because it was such a really big deal. In the Civil War, there was a big battle in Virginia around a salt mine because salt was so very important. And so you find salt throughout history. It's a big deal. It's infiltrated, you know, every part of our life, even superstition. Uh, how many of you know this, that when you knock over salt accidentally, you spill salt accidentally, what are you supposed to do? Throw it over your shoulder. You're like, why in the world? Some of you never heard that before. Now you know. So uh, when you spill, you know, salt, you know, throw it over your shoulder. Say, so why in the world do people do that? It's to ward off bad luck. Spilling salt was seen as a bad omen that, you know, the devil was lurking about. And said, so why in the world would such a thing, you know, even, even be conceived? Because Leonardo da Vinci, uh, he painted uh, perhaps one of the most famous paintings in all of the world, The Last Supper. And if you look closely at The Last Supper painted by Leonardo da Vinci, you have Judah right here and Jesus right here and, and I know it's difficult for you to see so I put a little blue arrow right there Judas as he's getting ready to leave the table to go betray Jesus with his money bag in hand he knocks over the salt on the table and so the superstition came about that whenever salt is spilt, that means the devil's working. So, you know, Judas spilt the salt and the idea is that you throw salt over your shoulder to hit Judas on his way out and people have been spilling salt ever since and throwing salt over their shoulder. And see, that's why you come to church here uh, to find out really important things like that. To give you a little bit of a close up so you can see it a little bit better, there's Judas and right there is the salt shaker that he knocked over. And so that's, that's salt in history. And, and then there's salt when it comes to food, of course. That's, that's really what we care about because a lot of us live to eat. It's been called the central ingredient in every great recipe because you can have great ingredients, but if you leave out salt, it's just not gonna be a great result. Here's the thing about salt, if you don't know, you know about salt and how it works. Not only, I mean, we know it makes things taste better, but do you know that salt suppresses bitterness? You can use salt to take away the bitterness. So the next time you get a cup of coffee, it's a little bit too bitter for you. I, I've never met a cup of coffee I didn't like. I don't think there is such a thing as a bad cup of coffee. But if you find a cup of coffee that is a bit too bitter for you, grab a little bit of salt and put a little bit of salt in the coffee and the bitterness goes right away. All right? You're welcome. And see, so not only does salt, you know, suppress bitterness, but salt also, and this doesn't even make sense, it enhances sweetness. The very same salt that takes away the bitterness is the very same salt that enhances the sweetness of something. So you have a little dessert, you add a little bit of salt to it, it actually makes it taste better. It actually enhances the sweetness of it. You put a little salt in water, the vegetables cook faster. You put salt in the water of your pasta, your pasta is gonna taste better. Margaret Visser, this is what she said about salt. Salt is the policeman of taste. It keeps the various flavors of a dish in order and restrains the stronger from tyrannizing over 
the weaker, right? Now I know what you're thinking. Who has time to think about salt to this depth? Salt is a really big deal and we should think about it a little bit. But the key to salt is balance. Too much salt, it's inedible. Too little salt, it's not enjoyable. But when you're sitting at the table and you're served dinner and it's incredible and it is awesome, it is absolutely, it looks beautiful. It, it, it just, it's a beautiful setting. And when you sit at the table and the salt is just right, it's perfection, right? If it's too salty, it's like, ah, oh, no, I, I, mm, oh, that's terrible. Give me some water. If it's not salty enough, it, it's like, this is, I don't know, it's kind of bland, it's not whatever. But if there's just the right amount of salt, it's perfect. When there's too little salt, you know it. When there's too much salt, you know it. But when there's just the right amount of salt, like little baby bear's porridge, when it's just right, you know it's good, right? You, you don't ever eat something that's perfectly seasoned and go, this is perfectly salted. No, you just say, this tastes awesome. This tastes incredible. If it's got too much salt, you say, it's salty. If it's not got enough salt, you say, ah, this has no taste. But if it's just right, you just say, this is wonderful. And that's how salt works. It's a really big deal. It's a big part of our lives. And I don't know where we would be without salt. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about salt, but we'll talk about it in just a minute. If you are a guest of ours, you're watching online, this is not a cooking class. And uh, we're actually going to be talking about something really important because we're in the next to last week of a series called The Table. And we're talking about how in our current culture, we have lost the ability to talk to one another. We talk at each other, over each other, down to each other, and about each other. But we're losing the ability to talk to each other, especially people that disagree with us and that are different from us. And I think it's because our culture culture suffers from what I call toxic tribalism. And within toxic tribalism, one tribe stereotypes all the other tribes. And one tribe begins to operate off misinformed assumptions about all the other tribes. And in the process, they do the same to all the other tribes. And we become more and more polarized from one another and we lose the ability to have meaningful conversations about really important things. We lose the ability to negotiate ideas in a respectful, helpful way. And so consequently, many of us, you know, many Christians, we spend our time talking to groups of people who already agree with us and we talk about the people who don't agree with us. We've said it this way, that today, that today we not only disagree with one another, it seems as though we dislike one another simply because we disagree with one another. And again, we've lost the ability to talk to people we disagree with in a helpful, constructive way. So all throughout this series, I've been trying to deposit a question into your heart and into your mind, into my head and into my heart. And here's the question. What does it mean for our generation to be Christian? What does it mean for our generation to be Christian in our culture? And that's a question I hope you wrestle with. That's a question I want me and you know, myself to wrestle with. And that's a question I want our church to wrestle with. What does it mean to be Christian? And the answer to that question begins and ends with Jesus. And if we're going to know what it means to be Christian in our culture, we have to know Jesus, the real Jesus, the authentic Jesus, not the Sunday school Jesus, not the version of Jesus that you were presented once upon a time that was palatable and soft around the edges. I'm talking about controversial Jesus. I'm talking about Jesus who upset the religious and political norms of his day. We have to understand the real authentic Jesus in order to understand what it means to be Christian in our day. Because Jesus stepped into a hyper-political, hyper-religious culture and he invited people to his table. And by inviting people, all people to his table, people that believe different, behave different from him, he upset the political and the religious structures of his day. Jesus refused to lump people into groups. 
That's the way politics and religion treats people. They lump them into groups and then they talk about people as groups. Jesus refused to do that. Jesus took an individual, he took a personal interest in individual people. That's what Jesus did. Religion and politics elevated positions over people, but Jesus, he elevated people over positions, no matter what the position was about, because Jesus elevated the dignity of every single person. Jesus showed up and he refused to play by the rules of the kingdoms of this world. He introduced a kingdom that was not of this world. He offered a value system that was incompatible with the value system of this world. And then he invited men and women, boys and girls, to follow him. And he says, if you're going to follow me, I'm going to offer you a brand new citizenship. You're going to be a citizen of my kingdom. And the citizenship that you have in my kingdom is going to transcend all other citizenships that you may have on this planet. And not only am I going to give you a brand new citizenship, I'm going to give you a brand new identity that's going to transcend whatever identity that you assume for yourself. That you're going to be a follower of Jesus. You're going to be part of God's kingdom. And your greatest allegiance will be to the follower, be to the Savior that you follow. And so Jesus, he offered us this kingdom that's not of this world. This value system that isn't compatible with the kingdoms of this world. And then he says, I'm going to give you one word to know how to move forward. To know how to navigate the complexity of the day that we live in. And this was the word. Love. And it sounds simple and it sounds whatever, but specifically Jesus said, if you wanna move forward and understand what it means to be Christian, he said, I want you to love people the way that I've loved you. And this teaching of Jesus, which he said was the most important thing, it set his kingdom apart from the kingdoms of this world. You see, the kingdoms of this world, they move forward by opposing every enemy. That's what you have to do. You squash the rebel, you squash the enemy. But the kingdom of God moves forward by loving every neighbor. Jesus said every person is made by God in the image of God and we are to show them the love of God. So Jesus taught us that. And this is what makes the kingdom of God so different than the kingdoms of this world. Now, for those of you who've been in the church for a while and you love the scriptures and, and you know, you've, just, you've just kind of been into faith for, for quite some time, this idea of love your neighbor like Jesus has loved us, it, it's really easy to think it's simple, uh, it's sappy, it's a bit sentimental, but, but the reality is, it is clear, it is demanding, it is profound. And the idea that Jesus gives us of loving people the way that he loves us, it requires thoughtful contemplation. It requires careful reflection to actually figure out what that means. Because if you've tried to love all your neighbors, you have probably discovered it is not that easy. And it's not always clear how to love the person in front of you. It's not always clear of what you should say or what you shouldn't say. It's not always clear what it means to love the person in front of you the way that Jesus has loved you. This requires us to think, and we don't like to think. This requires us to reflect, and we don't like to reflect. So we just chalk it up and say, oh, that's sappy, that's sentimental, that's shallow. And it's anything but you can't get to the bottom of what it means to love someone the way that Jesus loves you. This is something we're always trying to process based on who it is, where we are, what the circumstances are. There are so many variables that we have to process and figure out. This is a difficult thing to love people the way that Jesus has loved us, specifically if we're going to bring them to our table and begin to have conversations. And so much of the New Testament is helping us make sense of how to get this right. Two weeks ago, Two weeks ago, we left off on a portion of scripture written by the Apostle Paul, a follower of Jesus, who began to explain to us what it means to get this right. 
When we bring people to our table, we begin to have conversations, we want to take the relationship deeper, what it actually means to love our neighbor the way that Jesus loved us, what it actually looks like to be like Jesus sitting at the table with people who disagree with us who are different from us. And this is where we left off. Paul said this. He said, let your conversation be always, no exceptions. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, this is Paul saying, this is what it means to be Christian in the 21st century. This is what it means for you to be Christian. No matter what the circumstance is, no matter who you're talking to, no matter where you are, this is what it means to be Christian. Now, I just don't want you to hear me read you this verse. If you're there in Somerset, Williamsburg, online here in London, I just don't want you to read this verse. In just a moment, I'm going to ask all of us at all of our campuses to read this verse out loud because I want you to hear you say this. And I want some of these words to get into your heart and to get into your thinking because this is a game changer and this is a guiding principle to help you, to help me, to help us know what it means to sit at the table and have meaningful conversations the way that Jesus had meaningful conversations in the first century. So let's say this together, all right, on three. One, two, three. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul says that's what it means to be Christian. This is the guiding principle. A lot of grace, a little bit of salt. Paul says that grace is the feast, grace is the banquet, and in the midst of the banquet there is a little bit of seasoning, a little bit of salt. He says that that's the guiding principle. Grace is the feast, you know, grace is the main attraction, but salt is there. Don't make any mistake about it. Salt is there. Salt should always be there. Salt makes things better because it's there. Salt is in the background doing what salt does. It's making things better. It's removing the bitterness. It's elevating the sweetness. It's making for a better experience for everyone. Grace is the feast. It is the main attraction, but in the background, there is a little bit of salt. There is just the right a bit of salt that makes the whole thing that much better. And so here's Paul's big point. Don't get out of balance. Don't get out of balance when it comes to grace and salt. Don't get out of balance because grace is what brings people to the table. Grace is what will keep people at the table. Too much salt, it's hurtful. Not enough salt, it isn't helpful. Just the right amount of salt, it is wonderful. So don't get out of balance. And here's the thing about it. It's easy to get out of balance. It's easy to get out of balance, but Paul says always let grace go first. And let grace be the main attraction. Let grace be the banquet, let grace be the feast. Because no one comes over for salt. You don't call your friends and say, hey, Friday night, seven o'clock, what are you doing? <laughs> hey, we're gonna open up some brand new boxes of salt. It's gonna be awesome, come over for some salt. Well, no, that would be silly, it's crazy. It doesn't even make sense, right? And that's what Paul's saying. Grace is the feast, salt is there in the background, making everything better. He says, go big on grace, go small on salt, right? He said, that's what you should do because people are hungry for grace. People are thirsty for grace. They don't say it, they don't articulate it that way, but your table as a follower of Jesus ought to be a place where anyone can find grace. 
When people need grace, they ought to know that they should find a follower of Jesus because those people go big on grace. They go big on grace, but there's always a little bit of salt in there and the salt just makes it all that much better. And that's how Paul says we ought to do it. Big grace, little salt. But here's the reality. Most of us were raised with grace and truth. A little bit of grace and a whole bunch of salt. Now, as I said a couple weeks ago, this isn't helpful. This is hurtful. This is offensive and this is abrasive. You can have Wagyu. You can have Japanese, Australian Wagyu. I don't care if it's a filet. I don't care if it's a bone-in ribeye with the deckle around the side. Can I get a witness? Glory to God, Jesus. Uh, you, you can have the best meat in all the world. But if you want to screw it up, it's just throw a dollop of salt on top of that steak. It ruins it. It's the best ingredients. It's wonderful. It's exquisite. But you mess it up with too much salt. That there, a little bit of grace and so much salt is not good for anyone. I can remember Alice and I, we were out one night with some friends of ours at a restaurant. And uh, it was one of our favorite restaurants uh, at the time. And, and they had just a really great filet and they would serve it with Japanese sweet potatoes and some vegetables. And, and it was one of those you know, restaurants where they don't put salt and pepper on the table. And you know why they don't put salt and pepper on the table? Because the chef assumes that his food is already seasoned perfectly. So there's no need to put salt or pepper on your table because you're not gonna need it. Well, the friends that we were with that night, they, they, they just love salt more than the average person. And, and so, you know, I think all of us got the same dish that night. And, and you know, I, I was digging in and Allison was digging in and we were just, man, this is great, it's incredible, you know. And our friend over there, mm. I, I, I need some more salt. And, and, and so they got the waiter to come over and said, I, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to have some salt. And the waiter kind of looked at him like, salt? You're asking for salt? You're asking for salt here? And he's like, yeah, I want some salt. So he brings him a little salt shaker. And, and, and I don't know if it was another patron. I don't know if it was the chef. I don't know if it was the waiter, but someone had unscrewed the top of the salt shaker. So when my friend turns the salt up, I mean, salt just, it's just, his steak is baptized, anointed completely too much with salt. And then he has to call the waiter back over and says, um, I'm going to need a new steak. <laughs> it was so funny. It was awesome. It was great. I mean, it, it, was, it was a lot of joy to watch all that happen. And I just continued to eat and enjoy my dinner. But that's, what, that's how salt is. Salt can ruin a wonderful thing. Too much salt, you, you can't unsalt it. Not enough salt, you can always add a little bit extra. But too much, the damage is done. Now, here's what I think is true. You may not think it's true, but that's okay. The longer that you follow Jesus and the longer that you're in church and the more that you become a seasoned Christian, the more you begin to navigate towards this, the easier it is to live like this. Something happens somewhere along the way that we begin to trust the power of truth more than we trust the power of grace. I don't know why that happens, but it just, it just happens. And so we navigate towards a whole bunch of truth and a little bit of grace. And this has been true throughout church history. You can read about it beginning with Constantine after Christianity was legalized 20 years later. We're killing each other because we don't believe, you know, the right things. And we kill people because we think they believe the wrong things. 20 or so, 30 years after that, Theodosius, he makes Christianity a matter of empirical decree that if you don't become a Christian, you get killed. I mean, yes, baptism numbers go up, church membership numbers go up, but that's what happens when this goes off the rails. 
In the 800s, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, becomes emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, known as the great evangelist Charles the Great. And one day we're told that he killed 4,500 people. He beheaded them, killed them because they refused to accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior. He chopped their head off and then they went home and celebrated Christmas. That's what happens when we go in that direction. This, this is part of church history. This is part of our story. And if we don't watch, th this is the direction we go into. Not to that extreme, perhaps, but we still go in the direction where we value so much salt and so little grace. Pope Urban II sent a whole bunch of Christians to the Holy Land to rid them of the vile race known as the Muslims. And they went from France to Constantinople to Jerusalem and they raped and pillaged and killed Jews and Muslims and babies all along the way because a whole bunch of truth and very, very, very little grace. And we find it happening all the way up through church history into America, even when the Puritans came to the New World. They began to drill holes in the tongues of the Quakers. They killed the Quakers. Then when we expanded west, Christians tied Indians to church pews so that they would stay in church because they were pagans and they were godless. And so the best way to show them the love of God was to chain them to pews. This is, this is what's happened throughout church history when things get out of control. We see it happening time and time and time again. And if we don't watch, we will navigate towards this in our culture. Here's the point. When we elevate truth over grace, we lose love and we lose ground. It happens every single time. Now, with all that said, let me say this. We are a people as Christians, followers of Jesus. We believe in the truth. We love the truth. We believe that the truth is light. We believe that the truth has the power to set people free. We believe that the truth is absolute. And we believe that the truth of God is eternal. But here's what Paul says. When it comes to truth, it just needs a little sprinkling. Truth is so potent. Truth is so powerful. All you need is a sprinkling. You need a whole bunch of grace and a little bit of truth. To say that you just need a little bit of truth isn't to make light of truth. It's to actually accentuate how powerful truth is. You need a whole bunch of grace, but it only requires just a little bit of truth. Grace makes truth better. And truth makes grace better. And this is an art. This, this is a balance. This, this is something that requires thoughtful reflection on how do we get this right? How do we make sure that we go big on grace and we go small on the salt? That we're careful not to put too much and we're careful not to put too little. That we salt sparingly but adequately and we salt gently. See what I'm talking about? This is not always easy. You're in a conversation with a whole bunch of people and there's a lot of different worldviews and a lot of different positions about a lot of really important emotional, passionate issues. You gotta know how to make sure to stay big on grace and little on the salt. And if you'll go big on grace and a little on the salt, it will take away the bitterness, it'll elevate the sweetness, and it'll make it enjoyable for everybody involved. You don't sacrifice grace and you dare not sacrifice truth. You have to have them both, but you have to have them in the right balance. So what does it mean? What, what does all this mean practically? Because I know some of you, you say, well, one week, Trevor, I think you're saying this, and another week, I think you're saying that, and at the end of all the weeks, I have no idea what you've said. Well, that, that's, that's probably valid. I get that. But when you read through the Gospels, one time it seems like Jesus is saying this, and another time it says, you know, it seems like Jesus is saying that. 
And sometimes it seems like Paul saying this and Peter saying something different. And as you take the New Testament and you try to get to know who is Jesus, the more we know about Jesus, the better we can understand about the rest of it. Yes, Jesus seemed to be one way in certain instances and another way in a different instance. And it goes to show us that love doesn't always look the same. When you're sitting in front of someone and you're talking with someone, it's not always cookie cutter. But here's what Paul said. If, if, if you want to latch on to something a bit more practical, he said, okay, here's what I think it means. It means speaking the truth in love. You got to speak the truth. People need the truth. Christians should be a people who speak truth. We are a people who believe in the power of truth, in the value of truth. He says, but you've got to speak the truth in love. Truth without love harms. It's not helpful. Telling the truth is one thing, but every parent knows how you tell the truth is a more important thing. Parents teach their children all the time, tell the truth. And then their kid tells somebody the truth and you're like, oh, no, you can't say that. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. But no, you can't say that. Well, was it true? Yes, it was true, but you, all, you just can't say that. It's, it's not helpful. It's not gracious. It's not kind, right? You know, parents do this all the time and we're trying to get this right, like many of you and some of you are empty nesters and, and you know, you, you've got, probably got some insight to all this, but... You know, we're trying to teach our kids about truth and how to tell truth and, you know, exactly what it looks like to do it right and delicately. And I'm driving down the road one day and, and you know, I, I don't pay attention a lot. I'm not aware entirely a lot of times of my, you know, surroundings. And, and I'm driving down the road and the, the satellite radio's on and the news is on and there's a news report and I'm kind of vaguely aware of what they're talking about. They're talking about that there has been this, 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 this stuff called trisodium phosphate discovered in cereals that are marketed to children and trisodium phosphate is used to strip aluminum and it's a major cause of cancer and it's extremely toxic and they found it in kids' cereal. And then not only that, but they're talking about how, you know, they found this chemical that causes cancer and weed killer. It's also in some, you know, cereals that have been marketed to children. And, and I'm listening, Shepard and Grayson are in the back seat, and I'm driving down the road, not really thinking. They start naming some of the cereals. Well, two of the cereals that they named were two of my boys' favorite cereals. And again, I'm not thinking about any of this. I'm driving down the road, next thing I know, I look up in the rearview mirror, and Shepard's got a big tear coming down his eye. I'm caught off guard. Shepard, what, what, what's going on? What, what happened? He's, well, well, great. Now I'm going to get cancer. <laughs> and I said, what? And he, he started recounting, you know, what was going on about it. And, and I looked over and Grayson's all sad. And Grayson said, Can cancer's horrible. And, and this, dad, we've been eating this since we were two years old. How could you do this? And I'm like, listen, you know, I'm trying to make them feel better and you know, all this. Well, a few days, maybe even a couple of weeks go by. We go to Kroger, you know, I got my little thing in my arm and, and we're just going through, zipping through, grabbing like, you know, five or six things that we need for dinner that night. And it's like, I see something happening, but I'm not, I'm, it's like, you can't stop it. And, and, and there was, there was, you know, a woman who was getting ready to, to grab a cereal off the, off the thing. And, and, and Grayson just goes up and grabs her by the shirt and says, you know, you're going to get cancer. <laughs> and you just smile. Hi. You know, or, or, you know, well, anyway, I'm not going to go into, so you're like, no, you can't say that. Well, dad, that's what they said. Is it not true? Yeah. 
I, you can't say that, right? You speak the truth, but it matters how you say the truth. It matters what you say. You can't invite a whole bunch of people over to your house and say, okay, hey, before dinner served, I, I just want to let you know why I invited you all over. I think you're all a bunch of whore, whoremongers, and uh, you're living like hell, and if you don't repent and get right, you're going to go to hell. And uh, so I'm going to invite you to turn or burn, and before we eat, would you like to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ so that you can go to heaven when you die and have abundant life here on earth? No? Okay. We don't do that, right? Because the truth was never meant to be weaponized. It's not a bat. It's not a dagger. It's not a taser. It's not a stone. It's delicate. It's potent. And you got to learn how to use it right. It's not a weapon. So don't use it that way. Don't pick it up and swing it and hit somebody with it. Don't stab somebody with it. It's not a weapon. In church history, we always talk about truth. We have church councils, doctrinal statements, theology books. But what if we got as serious about grace as we love to be serious about truth? What, what if we could gain balance? But here's what we think balance looks like. This is what we think balance looks like. We think balance looks like that. Equal part grace, equal part truth. Looks good, feels emotionally good, looks true. But the problem is, Paul said, that's, that's not the right proportion. This is all about balance. And the balance of grace and truth is, is kind of like this. And that, is, that doesn't seem equal because all you need is a little bit of the salt, but you need a whole bunch of this. Grace is magnetic, it's compelling, it's attractive, it's gentle, it's patient, it's kind. But you just need a little bit of uncompromised truth and a whole bunch of unconditional grace. And here's what this looks like. Truth says, you know what? Wow, I really disagree with that. I, 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 I don't know. I just can't see that. I, I, I just disagree with that position. But here's what grace says. Even though I disagree with your position, I still accept you as a person. I still love you as a person. We're still okay as people. We disagree about something really important, but we're still okay. This is not the end of our relationship. I, I don't see it that way. I don't think I could ever see it that way. That's interesting that you do, but I disagree. I, you know, the truth is, I don't think that's right. The truth is, it just, it just isn't compatible with me. The truth is, I think that the scriptures teach this. The, tr the truth is, I just, I just don't think that's right. But, but Grace says, even if you're wrong, I still love you. I'm still with you. I'm still for you. And I hope that grace means if I'm wrong and you're right, that you're still okay with me. You're still good with me. You still love me. That, that's the way this thing works. It's the right balance of, of grace and truth. You're not giving up truth and you're not giving up grace, but you got the right balance, a whole bunch of grace and a little bit of truth. You got to have truth to make grace better. And you need grace to make the truth better. You got to have both. So we got to learn how to get this right. We got we to learn how to use this stuff because we can't be careless with it. We, we just can't throw it out there. It's an art, it takes time, it requires reflection, it requires contemplation. If grace is made better by truth and truth is made better by grace, then I think this is what Paul's getting to. Every word matters. Every word matters. Every word you speak matters. Getting the balance right, it matters. It matters as a couple in your, in your home. It matters as parents to your children. It matters with people at your table. It matters with friends. It matters with colleagues. It matters with strangers. 
Paul says, okay, let me give you a little bit more. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And really, the Greek is, you know, don't puke on people. Just don't, 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 don't spit up on people, stuff that's stinky and gross and stuff that's just going to mess things up that's not helpful or healthy. Don't, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful. Everybody say helpful. This is about helping. So you got to figure out what is most helpful in this moment. Love does no harm. That's a guiding principle in the New Testament. You're about helping, not harming. So you got to wrestle with, okay, if I say this, is this harmful right now or is this helpful? This is just not about throwing it out there and letting the chips fall where they may. No, 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 no. Your responsibility, my responsibility is to figure out, is this helpful? Okay, I'm going to say this. I'm thinking about saying this. I'd like to say this. Is this helpful or is this going to be harmful? Is this the time? Is this the place? Is this going to build them up according to their needs? Is this, is this about them or am I trying to make this about me? Am I trying to p- prove my point or is this really about them? That it may benefit those who listen. Is this going to benefit them right now? Or is this going to just kind of compromise the whole thing? And, and then here's how the ESV puts it. Don't let corrupt talk come out of your mouths. But only as such that is good for building up as, the, as fits the occasion. Depending on the occasion determines what you may say or what you, know, you don't say or how you say it. You got to know who you're with. You got to know why you're there. You got to know who's listening, who's watching. It matters. And the occasion may not give you the freedom to say what you want to say. The occasion may not be that you're at the place in the relationship that you can say what you want to say. So that it gives grace to those who hear. And then Paul says a verse that many of you have heard, but you didn't know the context. Then he says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And it's in the context of our speech, of our words, of our conversation. He says, don't get at the table and throw out a whole bunch of salt with a little bit of grace because it grieves the heart of God. Don't, don't cop out, that's just who I am. I, I just gotta tell it, I just gotta tell it. I just gotta say it, I just gotta say it, I just gotta tell it. That's who I am, I, I gotta say it. It's the way God made me. Shut up, no he didn't. He said to go big on grace and a little bit on salt. I mean, if you got to swallow doubly hard, take a big old pill called get over it and take it right then and swallow it for another time. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't say the wrong thing at the wrong occasion. Don't say the right thing at the wrong occasion. Don't grieve the heart of God and say something and get out of balance and God go, "Mm, no, I wish you would have said that. Oh, that hurts my heart that you said that. Bring people to the table and get the balance right. Get the balance right. So next week, I'm gonna wrap this whole thing up. We're gonna put a big bow on it and then we're gonna go on and we're gonna talk about something else. But before we go today, I just wanna wanna throw some ideas out and just kind of machine gun. And some of them are going to stick and some of them won't and they'll be online and you can look at them later. But I just want to throw some what I think are practical ideas about what this looks like and what this means for all of us when when we go right on the proportion. Here's what I think it means practically. Seek to understand first and be understood second. Be a student. Be a student of both sides of an issue. Be a student of all sides of an issue. Here's something that's hard for me. Here's something I'm trying to work on. Here's something I think you should work on. Be humble enough to doubt your rightness in the beginning. Be humble enough to doubt your rightness in the very beginning. Be able to say these words. 
I could be wrong. Matter of fact, let's all just say that together. I could be wrong. Some of you couldn't bring yourself to say it, could you? <laughs> One more time. I could be wrong. You know what? Um, wow, you know, I, I'm really glad we're going to talk about this. And, and, you know, here's what I think. But I just, you know, I just want to let you know the honest to God truth in my heart. I could be, hard, I, I could be wrong. I, I could be wrong. I, I, I think I'm right, but I, I want you to know I could be wrong. Don't be so proud that you're dogmatic. Know both sides of an issue and understand that you could be wrong. You may not be right. All right, it's a big deal. You'll gain influence. If for nothing else, you're honest because they already know that you could be wrong. Matter of fact, they think you're wrong. So if you just admit that you could be wrong, hey, that's gaining points. Second thing is this, ask questions before you start making statements. Before you start defending your position or prosecuting theirs, just ask questions. Tell me why you think that. Really, that's what you think about that? That's, that's how you interpret the Bible like that? Really, tell me why. Who'd you read that? Where'd you hear that? Really? Just get to know, get to know their point of view, get to know the person. I mean, that, that's powerful. Ask questions before you start making statements. The more you understand, the, the, the more you know, the better you're gonna be. So learn as much as you can. And here's a big one. Listen actively to what is being said rather than actively thinking about what you want or need to say. You ever been in a conversation, maybe a, a good lively debate with somebody and there's a bunch of people talking and then all of a sudden one person just says, well, I'll tell you what. And then they say what they say and it's like, that's not even what we're talking about. And you know what happens in that moment? Everybody around the table loses credibility, you know, loses, thinks that person's lost influence and credibility. Stay engaged and stay on topic and stay with the conversation. Don't just say something to be saying it because you think it ought to be said because people are gonna discount you the moment that you make a point about something they're not even talking about. If you need a moment to think about it, say, you know, I don't know, I've never thought about it that way. Wow, you're, you're really good at that. You made a good point. I don't even really know what to say in response to that. I mean, we may have to get together for another dinner to, for me to think about that. Maybe we just need to stop right now because I, I don't know what to say about that. That's okay. That's a good place to be. Don't, don't just talk to talk. Hey, be willing to concede the upside of their side and the downside of your side. Because you know what? There's a downside to your side and there's an upside to their side. So just go ahead and put it out there. So you know what? There's parts of my position argument that I, I know it doesn't make sense and there's some inconsistencies and I don't really know what to make about this or that, but, but I still think this. And you know, and tell them, man, that's, that's such a strong point that I can, I can see why I can get that. That's, that's the way you have honest conversation because there is an upside of the other side and there is always a downside of your side and the quicker you're honest about that, the better off everybody is. Remember that cheap shots aren't cheap. They cost us influence. Can't influence an insult at the same time. Can't do it. Here's a big one. Understand that not every issue is created equal. Whether it's in theology, politics, society, whatever, there's absolutes, there's convictions, there's opinions, and there's questions. Not all things are created equal. Not all issues are of equal importance. Listen, if you're a Christian, and you believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he died for sins, he was buried, he was raised from the dead, and that we find grace alone and Christ alone by faith alone. If you're there, we, we can struggle through the rest. If you're not there, nothing else matters as much as that. Nothing else matters. It's not all equal. So I could talk about something I think is a sin, something I think is a big deal, but if, you don't, if, you, if you're not there on Jesus yet, I don't even wanna waste my time with the other stuff. Why does that matter? Jesus is the only thing that matters. If you're already there with Jesus, 
Nothing else matters as much as that. It's a big deal for us to get that right. Don't ignite conflict, diffuse it. Soft answers turn away wrath. It's great in marriage. Try it sometime. Proverbs 15:1. Don't don't ignite it, diffuse it. And when it comes to words, it's better to be thoughtful than regretful. So think. Pause. Take a breath. Compliment. Ask questions. This is how we get this right. It's it's the balance of a whole lot of grace with a little bit of truth. Truth is powerful. The truth is like a two-edged sword. Truth is a shield. It's a buckler. Shield's a big deal. Truth's a big deal. You you don't need a lot of it, but you got to get it right. And so here's the takeaway for today. Whenever you find yourself more concerned with telling the truth than showing grace, you've gotten out of step with Jesus. Because telling someone the truth matters, but how you tell them the truth matters more. We are a people of grace, and we are a people of truth. And when we get it right, we're going to go big on grace, and we're going to sprinkle in the salt. And it's not going to be too little, and it's not going to be too much. We're going to do our best to get it just right. And when it's just right, that's when things begin to happen. That's when God begins to work on hearts. That's when God begins to change lives. Heavenly Father, God, balance is difficult. Learning how to love is difficult. Being thoughtful in our faith is difficult. God, we think that we want to go deep and we think that we want to memorize and we think that we, you know, need to get all this information. But God, the the most simple, compelling, profound, demanding part of our faith is the part that Jesus said was the most important, that Paul said was the most important. And that was to love as we have been loved, to communicate with grace and truth and to figure out the balance of that. So God, help us to wrestle with this, have conversations about this. God, help us to to be troubled by some of it. Help our hearts to be broken by some of it. God, help our minds to be blown by some of it. God, help us to get this right. In Jesus' name.